0: Dr. Suzanne Zee is a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Dundee. Her main field of research is into the interwoven strands of parent-infant communication and interaction. Here she talks about her ideas and comments on her paper From Intersubjectivity to Subjectivity, the Transformative Roles of Imitation and Intimacy.
1: In a very um, basic sense, subjectivity is kind of a sense of self And intersubjectivity is what happens when we try to bring two selves together. So can they engage and respond to each other, or do they exist in some sort of parallel way? And given that humans are actually very intersubjective creatures, one of the questions is, how do we develop that ability? The reason that it excites psychologists is the question of origins. Given that lots of adults Are intersubjective so if you smile I have an idea that you're happy or if you frown I have an idea that something's not happy about you and I know when your sentence is going to end and it's my turn right is that something that sensitivity to other people is that something that we learn or is it something that we're born with if it isn't something that we're born with how do we actually acquire that sensitivity to other people and studies of babies let you answer those questions of origins, but then you have the question of what do I look for in a baby's behavior to help me to know about their sensitivity to other people. We've had a lot of discussion in developmental psychology about the shift from subjectivity to intersubjectivity. So one idea is that I come into the world as a kind of a self, as aware of myself, and how do I connect to you? So how do I become an intersubjective being? Mead and Vygotsky would say actually that it's out of intersubjectivity that our subjectivity comes. So it's almost two different developmental pathways. Do I go from self to engagement or do I go from engagement to self? One of the big um, criticisms that's been made of Vygotsky's work is he said that, he had that idea, but he didn't really say how that happened. And that's what I wanted to explore in this paper, is what would happen in this interaction between two people that would give rise to a sense of self in an individual. One of the things that strikes me about two people interacting and about very early interactions between parents and children is how focused they can be, how intimate they can be. So we know that at three months old, babies love engaging with other people. I mean, they're totally into it. Not all the time, because they they do it for shortish amounts of time, but they can be totally into the other. They're transfixed by the other person. And in lots of studies of mother-infant interaction, mothers are transfixed by them. So those feel very close, very emotionally engaged. And interestingly, in developmental psychology, we often don't look at the emotions of that engagement. So one of the things we've been good at is thinking about how babies think. And, again, a a particular camp of developmental psychologists says that what babies do is think about other people. And what I'm really saying is babies feel with other people rather than think about other people. And it is that feeling with, that intersubjective experience, out of which comes a sense of self. Okay. Um, And in the paper I talk about Imitation. The exciting thing about imitation is that it is a really close matching between self and other. I cannot help but notice if you are imitating me or doing something in correspondence with me. I get that you are doing something about me. So that relation between us is enhanced and sharpened. And so the intimacy is made all that uh, tighter. And if we look at imitation across babies, um, across adults, across um, people with communicative impairments, as soon as you start imitating, it's like that. It's like turns on this light bulb. And so that's why I th- think that imitation really enhances this sense of intimacy out of which I think subjectivity might be growing.
0: We asked Suzanne about the work of other psychologists, such as Professor Andy Meltzoff, who think that babies assume that other people are like themselves.
1: Andy and other people like Tomasello and Lewis and a whole camp of developmental psychologists are sort of saying that you come into the world with a sense of self, some sort of sense of self, and you're interested in other people, but how do we create this relation to them? What Andy is saying is that babies notice the similarity in movements and it helps them to think about other people. So we do it by simulation. So at some level, I'm going, oh, when I suck my thumb, um, that helps me to feel calm. So when you suck your thumb, you must also be calm. Because, because Andy is drawing on a very philosophical idea that the, what we think and feel is hidden inside our heads. And I have to infer it. It, it isn't obvious, it's hidden. And that's a very Cartesian idea, that mind and body are are a dichotomy, that they're split. There, there's other people like um, Trevarthan and Reddy and Nadel who would take the view that actually mind is not quite so hidden, that it is present, that you can see it. And therefore, I can feel with you. So, it is out of this emotional rather than thinking that engagement comes, but an important proviso is that I, 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 at least as a baby, have to have an interest in what you are doing, and there has to be some sort of sense of separation between you and me, I don't mean that it's some big mass, because babies take their turns, we know that they do that from as neonates. So if you stick out your tongue, I can stick my tongue back out at you. And then you can take a turn and I can take a turn. So babies have got that turn-taking rhythm. So it's probably more that you bring some sort of sense of subjectivity, but also intersubjectivity. And it happens through feeling. Because here's the big question. If your mind is hidden, then the process of me understanding that mind is mysterious. I need a bridge to get to you. And that's what Meltzoff is trying to build, is this... Um, active intermodal matching that he talks about. W- what I'm saying is that it actually if it's obvious I don't need to build a bridge, what you're thinking and feeling is apparent to me and I can work with that.
0: We asked her why interactions and imitation are important for social development.
1: Does the interaction matter if you already come with uh, subjectivity? Yes, because You've, all that, that subjective sense of self has to be fleshed out, it has to be enriched. I, I may have some sort of sense of who I am, but I don't know all the things that that sense of self means. It doesn't have any, it doesn't have any qualities yet. Mm-hmm. right? So it is in interaction between us that I get a better sense of me, of what the boundaries between you and me are. So let me try and give an example. What I'm trying to work out is the nature of relationship. Where do I stand in relation to you? If I stick my tongue out, do you stick your tongue back back out at me? And we end up laughing. That's something we can share. Or if I stick my tongue out at you, do you actually withdraw? And I think, oh, okay, that's uncomfortable. We start to work out what the boundaries between myself and yourself and our relation, where it lets us go. Effectively, we're building trust. And one of the reasons that's important is that I then take that sense of self, which I learned in relation to you, into my other relationships in future.
0: Suzanne outlined an important difference between her idea and those of Professor Andy Meltzoff.
1: Andy Meltzoff is interested in the cognitive pathways and mine are the affectual pathways. But that's a really important distinction, because if, if the mind is hidden and what I do is think about you, then this process of interaction, of intersubjectivity, is mysterious. That's mm-hmm. why I need a bridge. Whereas if it is affectual and it is present in the body, it's, it's not mysterious. It makes sense why I would be able to so easily and quickly read the emotional expressions on your face. Mm-hmm. So the key thing is that it takes the mystery out of it out of the process, and it highlights something that developmental psychologists have just really not given a lot of attention to, which is the emotional nature of engagement.
0: What does Suzanne think about the implication that infants' minds are more advanced than has previously been thought?
1: I want to ask, why are we so surprised by that? Why do we not take that as
0: red? We are not surprised when
1: babies have ten fingers and toes, but we are somehow surprised that they are so socially sensitive. We are surprised by that because of our ideas about babies. But then the question is, how do we convince skeptics? And therein lies the um, the wondrousness of infancy research. All you've got to go on is a baby's behavior. What will I look for in a baby's behavior and in order to, to tell about intersubjectivity or subjectivity or anything, right? The key thing for intersubjective questions is, what is the baby's responsiveness to other people? So it's not just how the baby responds on their own, but how tuned in their behavior is to somebody else. That's why the still face paradigm is so interesting. Babies, from the time they are neonates, we now know, are sensitive to if you stop responding to them, their face goes still. And then when you start to respond to them again, they wake back up. Or actually, maybe they're anxious, you went away from me. Why did you go, this is a bit scary? So still face is one. Um, imitation is one. So you stick your tongue out, at, the baby sticks their tongue back out at you. Newer research shows that not only do babies respond to what you do, if you stop after a while, so you've been having a lovely conversation, sticking out fingers, if you stop, after a little bit, the baby will go, hello, where did you go? So babies provoke as well. Those are examples of the kinds of phenomena that we can look at to try to understand about inner subjectivity. But the question is always, is it enough? Will it convince other people? We are talking about how do we interpret behavior? And that's the challenge of infancy research. We've often seen imitation, as um, up till now, as a way of thinking about other people. Uh, And so again, that's what Andy Meltzoff would say, that when you do the same thing that I do, so I perform, so I go like this, you do, you do this, or I stick my tongue out, you perform an action. That, that that helps me to think about you because we're doing the same behaviors. What if imitation is actually about emotional engagement? And therefore, it's not just about the linear sequence of actions, but it's about anything that's similar between us. So is imitation also when you adopt the same posture as me, which we've tended to call attunement, Uh, in the literature, so that was supposed to be picking up the emotional aspect. What if we need to redefine what imitation is? And, and, And the reason that could be important is because by redefining it we better understand the questions we set out to answer. We might have missed the importance of imitation for promoting intimacy because we didn't think about it that way and therefore we didn't get the evidence that would help us to answer that
0: question. Finally, we asked Suzanne about the more general importance of imitation, particularly with individuals with disabilities. One of the things that
1: is just a newly emerging area of research um, is showing is that if you use imitation with people who have communicative impairments, like children with aut- or adults with autism, learning disabilities, children who have suffered severe neglect like, like uh, orphans in Romania, dementia... So people who are having trouble communicating and engaging socially, we now know that if you use imitation as an intervention, it has what some people describe as almost magical effects. And within seconds, which sounds too soon, but literally, if you measure the time in videotapes, within seconds, people who are traditionally disengaged, move right back in. They become much more interested. They begin to look more. They begin to um, focus more. They begin to smile. They begin to do all the things that we see babies doing. So the first question is, is that true? Does that really work? Well, we we need more research on it, but the answer to that is yes, it works. So the next question then is, why does it work? And it brings us back to all of these questions about imitation and about subjectivity and intersubjectivity. And the implications of that are huge. So if we take dementia as an example, because I think that's really cutting edge, um, we tend to think that people with dementia have lost their social abilities, their ability to engage socially, because they're not doing anything that we recognize as social. And that's hard. That makes it hard for us. So if they're not nodding after I'm saying something, it's hard for me to engage with them. And if their face is blank, it's like a still face. So carers in homes that are now filled in British society with people who have dementia aren't getting any feedback and they're not giving engagement to people. So what you have are people who are more and more and more disengaged. Amazingly, if you use their body language, and you can call it imitate, but actually, maybe imitation is the wrong word. Suddenly now we have to think about what do we mean by our terms. And in fact, some people would say imitation is too harsh. That makes it sound like you're, you're mimicking them. You're mimicking their behaviors. You're not communicating with them. So maybe we need to call it something else. So that's an interesting pathway. If we use their bodily language as the way to communicate with them, they're back in like that. They're, they're engaged. They're smiling. They're doing turn-taking. And... They're almost joyful, right? That says their intersubjective capacities have not disappeared. Um, it, we, we haven't been able to bring those out because of our response to them, but they're just below the surface. They're responding like that. So that has huge implications for the kind of interventions we use, the kinds of drugs we administer, and the kinds of worlds we make people live in. So perhaps their social capacities, which have decreased, are actually of our making rather than of theirs. That's not just true for dementia, it's true for children with autism, who we often see as not really wanting to engage. Our work is showing that if you use their bodily language as the way for engaging with them, they can do a lot more social things than we think they can. That then makes us say, what is autism again? What questions have we thought to ask? Why should they be able to do this highly sophisticated thing when I didn't think autistic kids could do that? And that brings me back to why do we see it as so sophisticated? Why are we so surprised? So the thing that's exciting about imitation uh, and communicative impairments is that they make us think again about the whole basis of human nature and about what is intersubjectivity and what is it again that those babies can do? Because we're using the things that we know about babies to now interact with, with adults. And it, it brings full circle this whole thing about subjectivity and intersubjectivity and raises a whole new set of questions that I think we have only begun to think about.
0: From the Open University.